Anybody needs these tissues, take them. Because I know it's some sniffling, sneezing, coffee, A fever, so you can rest medicine, folks, in here. And I know it's some of y'all at home watching at home, praying for you. It's just a lot of people getting COVID is on the creep. I'm glad it ain't that 2020 COVID, because that's when you was really worried about folks, right? But this COVID seems to just be annoying, where the other one was, was making people absent. But we know a lot of people are sick. So thank you for being here, braving the weather and all of that. Well, today is the last Sunday of the year and the last day of the year. It was 2017 was the last time that New Year's Eve was on a Sunday. And I don't know if you remember, but the church was a different church in 2017, and the world was a different place. Six years, a lot has changed in six years. Those of us who are willing to reflect on the year usually celebrated or denigrated. So when we celebrate it, we thank God for the moments of 2023. And when we denigrate it, we thank God that 2023 is over and we hope for better moments in 2024. But the reality for most of us is it's somewhere in between, right? There were some good times in 2023 and there's some tough moments, right? So we're usually in the middle. I am no different. This has been one of the craziest years of my life particularly the last four months. From September till now, when I came back from sabbatical, we've heard many exhortations to take our faith seriously. I started with explaining the reality from 2 Timothy 3.12 that indeed all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. That's how we began when I came back, is reminding ourselves that if you truly are a believer, Right, so there's, there's a professing to be a believer, which a lot of people in this room are, but then there's trying to be godly. Believe it or not, the Bible makes different qualifications. Not everybody is trying to be godly who professes to be a believer. How God will sort that out, you'll find out when you stand before him. But not everyone is trying to be godly, but the, the scripture says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. You cannot be like Jesus and not experience suffering and persecution like Jesus. doesn't work that way. And then we looked at earthly versus eternity and used the phrase eternity first, right? Trying to remind ourselves that we got to start putting eternity first. Then we talked about what is good and godly, the distinction. I made the distinction between good and godly. And you heard me say, look, we got to believe until you leave. Then we spent some time talking about resisting the schemes of the devil and got down to understanding grace and, and realizing that for us, for us, it's not grace versus works, but grace works. And then we realize it's not just grace works, it's grace works to reward. There's real treasures in heaven that Jesus is commanding people who profess to believe, especially those who want to be godly, 
to be looking forward to. All this phraseology has been helpful, reminding us of the claim that God has on our lives because of the cross. And all of these phrases are pointing to a way for us to exhort each other, to keep each other focused, should we have those relationships. To varying degrees, these phrases have been good, but I feel like there's so many of them They're cool and clever when you hear them, but easily forgotten. We move on. I'm a wordsmith. I try to find clever ways to say things. See, I'll be like, oh, that was tough. And then we move on. (laughs) I find a new clever way to say it. I'm always trying to outdo myself. It's the problem. It's my problem now. Too clever for my own good. To varying degrees, all of these phrases are helpful. But as I was thinking about our church and thinking about the year, the end of the year, and thinking about next year and where we're headed and who knows what that means, there are some things that have settled down. But you know how the Lord is. You turn the corner and drama's like, hey, how you doing? It's waiting for you. Suffering was like, oh, you finally got here. Good. Let's, Let's begin. Trials, all of it, sickness, COVID, Abe was waiting for you to finish preaching. Surprise. You never know what's happening. So as I thought about our church and all the things I was grateful for that happened this year, the devil attacking our church, people doubling down. There are people in this room, you have no idea, are doubling down because they want to honor the Lord. I thought, man, which of these phrases captures what we need to do? And I thought, none of them. They're good phrases. But none of them really capture what we need to do. Uh, And many of them are good in context. But if you're a Christian and never heard any of these messages, you might like how it sounds, but you don't know what grace works means. You might be like, oh, grace, yeah, okay, yeah. But you don't know the context of that. So as I prayed and thought, man, how do, we, how do we take what we've heard and turn it into marching orders for the next year? Believe it or not, tomorrow will be 2024 and not much else changes. You know how people would be like, man, I can't wait till 2023 is over. As if 2024 is going to be like, hey, guess what? Brand new opportunities waiting for you. Man, that's saying, I'm saying struggle's going to be there tomorrow morning. <laughs> Happy New Year. They're going to be right with you tomorrow. They ain't going, no, they ain't like, 2023, oh! <laughs> Them joints going to be right there tomorrow morning. You awake? They might wake you up. Hey, anger might wake you up. Whatever bitterness you carrying towards somebody today doesn't magically disappear tomorrow. The only thing that changes is the day. Heart change takes days, not a day. So as I thought about our church, I thought, man, how do we, how do we encapsulate all of this? And I thought, what's the one thing that all believers have in common? And how can I memorialize that? And there's many things that we have in common, but in terms of thinking about our lives, what's the one thing we have in common? And I thought, the future. The future. 
all genuine believers, biblically speaking, have the future in common. And not some dystopian future like in the movies, right? Where there's no water and everybody's fighting and, and cats have become the new thing or whatever. I mean, I'm going to talk about some dystopian future like The Last of Us. Some, some of the real future that we've yet to see but has been biblically explained and guaranteed that we will see. This future is so common in the Bible that it usually has two words. It's called the day or that day. And this is pervasive all over the Bible. Philippians 1.6, Paul says this. He's in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. He says this in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, talking to the church, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's thinking of a day in particular, a future moment, and promising them that whatever work that God's done in you, he will bring it to completion at that day. The same author, Paul, tells us his, his, his young disciple, Timothy, in 2 Timothy, verse 112, he says this, talking about why he's suffering to preach the gospel. He said, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. He's not ashamed to suffer as a believer. He said, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, Jesus, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So all the suffering that he's going through, all the ridicule, all the mockery for being a Christian, he's saying, I'm not ashamed of it. You can make fun of me all you want. I had this conversation with my boys a lot. Teach them, don't be ashamed, bro. This comes with it. It's not fun, but don't, don't be ashamed. I teach my sons how to make fun of people back a little bit. <laughs> you can judge me. I'm a good dad. I'm a... I'm like, nah, son, hey, say this when they say that. Don't be rude just when they say stuff to you. Just go like this. Ugh. Don't say nothing else but ugh. Just look at them until they get frustrated. <laughs> Teaching my son all the mind tricks. Kids can't make fun of my kids. They'll be like, ugh. Parenting, good advice right there, I'm telling you. <laughs> First Corinthians 3.13, it says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. There's going to come a day that's going to evaluate your work as a believer, and the works that you did genuinely to honor the Lord will come with rewards, and the works that did not will burn up. There's a day. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Talking about anyone in this room who is grateful for the fact that Jesus came and looking forward to him coming back, he says, there is a day when we will receive a crown of righteousness. That day is future. What we have in common is the future. 
1 Corinthians 7, 1, 7 and 8. He's telling them, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2, he says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brother, you need to have, you need, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware of that day of the Lord that will come like a thief in the night. 2 Peter 3, verses 9 and 10, Peter says, look, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. Eternity first. Believe until you leave. Resist the schemes of the devil. All of that is in preparation for that day. Every professing believer has been told by God in very clear terms, remember the future. Remember the future. Remember the future. Every one of us is heading towards that day, which is the future. And every genuine believer in this room would benefit from remembering the future. Remember. Or don't misunderstand me. Jesus tells you, don't worry about tomorrow. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. But the thrust of the Bible is we best be prepared for it. We don't worry about tomorrow, but we got to prepare for it. Tomorrow, this day, is promised to everyone. Tomorrow may not be. Somebody might not make it to January 1st. Might go home or, or not go home. But this day, everyone is going to see. Everyone. Everything we've talked about is to get us to remember the future. Even our understanding of grace is for the purpose of living in light of that day. Because I believe in all honesty, a proper understanding of grace is necessary to remember the future. And this is why we've emphasized it the last couple sermons. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that I had a conversation in my core group about grace. And in that conversation, a lot of us just realized, like, yeah, you know what? Grace is a little bit more complex than the way we think about it, the way we talk about it. I would say, in fact, many of us don't really think about grace that much. We just kind of, like, live in light of sort of this nebulous understanding of what grace is. And I think because of that, Satan has flourished among the church. 
I've learned over the years that grace is much more complex than we give it credit for, and that we have to be careful to not be so reductionistic when we talk about it. I believe this is a major issue in the modern church. I know this because some of you have been asking really good questions the last couple of weeks about grace and trying to understand it. What I'm about to say is not necessarily about just our church. What I'm about to say is an implication that I've seen in the church broader. I have, by God's design, the opportunity to go to different conferences and preach in different cities, have relationships with different pastors, and I, and I watch as Christians talk about grace and apply it. I see the books. I hear how pastors talk about it. I see the podcasts. So what I'm about to say is not necessarily an indictment of Solid Rock Church, but it does include us. But I'm talking about something broader. And again, I'm not the Lord. This is just from my limited observation. I want to bring up just a concern, which I would call the consequences of misunderstanding grace. In Galatians 2.21, here's what Paul says. He says this. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, he's talking about the difference between, and we'll get into this in a second, talking about the, the grace versus works, the law, but he's talking about circumcised and all of that. But this idea of nullifying the grace of God, the word nullify in the Greek is atheteo. It means to reject or declare invalid, ignore, not recognize, disallow, deny, disprove, reject, cancel, render ineffectual, let fall into disuse, not rely on or set aside. Paul says he doesn't nullify the grace of God. And many of us would also say that we do not nullify the grace of God. And praise God for that. But I think it's possible to nullify the grace of God by minimizing what it means and then applying grace based on that minimization. So grace falls into disuse if it's misused. In fact, I would say that many of us, not intentionally, have reduced what grace means to just one thing. We've reduced grace down to meaning unmerited favor from God, which on some level it is, 100%. But that's too reductionistic to think of the complexity of something of grace as just unmerited favor. Let me tell you why. Because we often talk about grace and relate to it based on what it releases us from doing. Many of us talk about grace based on what it allows us not to do. Many of us will say, yeah, we know grace doesn't lower the standard, but functionally, we apply it as if it does. Let me explain what I mean. We often use grace to release us from biblical commitments or pressing into the Lord. You know, we talk about it like, if we don't do something, something spiritual, some discipline, we're not going to hell. I mean, there's grace, right? We're not, 
It's almost as if like grace to us in our application means we don't have to go as hard as God commands us to because there's grace. I've heard many people talk like, I've talked like this before, to my shame. But that's not the way the Bible wants us to think about grace. We'll say stuff like, I mean, I don't have to go to church every Sunday. I don't have to read and pray every day. If I don't share the gospel, if I don't, I'm not going to hell. If I don't fill in the blank, because there's grace. I asked my core group, why do we always talk about grace from what we don't have to do? I don't ever hear the Bible talk like that about grace. But the way we talk about it is, I don't have to do this because there's grace. And here's what happens. Here's, here's what we, 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 we think. When we think like that, we're basically saying that grace provides us a shield of no consequences for sins and no confrontation for giving innocence. Because of grace, it's not that big of a deal if we don't go as faithful or go as hard as we should for the Lord. That's how we talk about it. We treat grace like its primary motive is to remove the consequences, confrontational correction from us. So much so that whether it's in a sermon or a sermon series or by a, a friend or a, a, a leader in the church, when we get corrected, we're immediately tempted to think it lacks grace. Because we think that grace means you should allow me to sin because I'm a believer and understand because I'm forgiven. We'll never say that, right? We won't intellectually say that, but we functionally will do that. Grace has become the get-out-of-jail-free card for not being as faithful as I should be. And when you start pressing people to be faithful, where's the grace? That lacks grace. Now, Jesus was the most gracious person that ever lived, and Jesus warned and talked of obedience a ton. Did he lack grace? So why is it grace when someone tells you or asks you, excuse me, about what you're doing? We've gotten to a point where grace removes us from the consequences or correction. And so when we correct and run each other, it's a challenge. We're offended. We think it lacks grace. Because in our minds, grace means there are no consequences for my sin. Like, I'm forgiven. Okay, I fell and stuff, but big, no, it's a big deal. I've seen this happen in this church and beyond. Here's the worst part of it. Is we assume that God relates to us based on the way we view grace. And he doesn't. Sure, grace does, on one level, remove the ultimate consequence for sin, for those of us who believe, absolutely. We all should go to hell for every sin we commit. We understand that. But grace isn't removing all consequences, all correction, all confrontation. So we're, we, we're so, we, it's so embedded in us that we will see people that we know are doing wrong and not say nothing to them. 
because we think it's grace to not address it. Even if it's a pattern over and over and over again. So in this church, people will come tell me, and I say, look, you got, I didn't see it. You got to go say it to them. But we think that's not grace. But where does that definition come from? I can't find any biblical passages that promote do not do this because it lacks grace. I know many churches that just are so bent on that lacks grace that they don't say nothing to people. They got people in their churches, they just stop hanging with them. These people are living in sin. You're not saying nothing because you think it's grace when in reality, I think it's fear, man. Or hypocrisy, because you do it and you don't feel comfortable telling them not to do it. But the worst part is we think God relates to us based on his grace. So when he allows consequences for our sins to come in or confrontational correction, we think he doesn't love us. We think God is mad at us and we're tempted. There's a proverb that says, when, a, when the consequences of a man's sin catches up to him, his heart rages against the Lord. It's Proverbs. But once consequences catch up to him, they rage against the Lord. Why? Because they think grace is the removal of consequences. And it removes the ultimate consequence, sure. But the reality is we just have a reductionized view of grace. And I see it happening all over. And the enemy is loving it. He's flourishing in churches among Christians. Because some of us will even give in to sin because we know that there's grace. We've given in to sin or are giving in to sin from the most serious to the light because there's grace. Reckless, reckless sin. You know, I tell this joke all the time to a couple of my friends to make a point. And I'm not above or beyond anything. I can fall in any way. I am not Moses coming down the mountain with two stone tablets. But I stand by this statement. I said, imagine if we go to the store. We go into like 7-Eleven, right? And then we come out and get in the car and drive away. And then I pull out of my pocket a candy bar that I stole, Right? Okay, set aside me being a Christian. It's like, fam, you every bit of 40-something years old, what you stealing candy bars for 7-Eleven for? Like, who does that? I mean, you just, even if you don't believe in nothing, you get to a point where you just become too grown to do certain things, you know? It's some people, you ever been out? Like, I don't really go to clubs and stuff, but there are times when I did go, I see somebody in there every bit of 55 years old. It's like, hey, 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 fam. You shouldn't be here, bro. This is, you too old to be in the club. I just want to, you know, it's like, nah, you about to have a cardiac arrest. Go, bro. You shouldn't be here. You just too old. Like, it's, who, I mean, you still in candy bars at 40 years old. You too old to be doing that stuff, right? You too old. Some of us in this room have been walking with the Lord for a long time. You too old in the faith to be doing reckless sins. You too old. It's things that I just, 
I can fall in any way, shape, or form. But there's just things that I've just come to the conclusion. I'm just too old to be doing reckless stuff like that. Like you've been walking with the Lord too long. There should be no risk. You're too old to be stealing candy bars because there's grace. You're too old to be giving in to certain sins because there's grace. You're too old in the faith. What are you doing? It's reckless. There are consequences for recklessness. And it's not always the end of your life. But it could be the end of your desire. The lack of joy. That eventually leads you somewhere. Some of us have been walking with the Lord too long to be playing around with grace like this. Now I'm talking to my church. You're too old in the faith. You've been walking with the Lord too long. At least so you say. It's just some things that, and the Lord knows, I'm not exempt. I can fall in any way, but it's just some things I'm not even tempted to. It's just like, man, I'm, it's just, what would be the point of that? What would be the point of being reckless like that? I don't care. Grace doesn't give me that. Grace removes me from that. My concern for our church and just the church in general, this isn't largely an indictment against Solid Rock. I do see it in our church. But my, my concern is it's bigger that just the understanding of grace from many Christians' perspective is what it allows us not to do. And I think that's a dangerous way to view grace. And many of us have made reckless decisions in 2023 because of a reductionistic low view of grace. If you're not sure if you have a low view of grace, just ask yourself, like, what do I prioritize? What things do I excuse myself from? How many times have you not gone to core group when you could because of grace? I don't have to go every time. I don't got to be there every time. I don't got to show up at church every time. You're right. You don't. But why is grace the reason why you don't? You don't got to share that gospel with somebody every minute of every day. But why is grace the reason why you don't? You don't got to read your Bible for hours every day, pray for hours every day. When was the last time you prayed for an hour because of grace? Why is grace always the reason why we don't have to do something when the Bible does not say grace removes responsibility from us and should be used as a weapon to not have to be as faithful as we could? We have to remember the future. Remember the future. Remember the day of the Lord. Tomorrow's not promised, but that day is. That day is promised to everyone, whether you believe in Jesus or not. And I think as we approach 2024, first of all, let me say that what our church has walked through this year and the way people have doubled down and pressing in, I'm proud to be a pastor of this church. I read articles all the time. Me and Mike read these articles all the time. Pastors walking away from their churches. Giving is up. Pastor, we just read this article called Giving is Up, Morale is Down. I've known so many pastors who said, man, they walking away. And there were days I just was tired of it too. 
but I was like, nah, I'm not, I'm not you know, I'm, I'm watching people double down at my church. We got flaws. Shit, I'm flawed. I'm proud of our church, but we got to keep going. There's room to grow. And the view of grace that I think many of us have needs to switch in 2024. Grace is not the reason why you don't have to do something. We'll talk about what the Bible actually says about grace. I want to correct that understanding of grace today. But to do it, I need to, I need to tie up some loose ends about the grace verse works in the biblical context. Some of you have came up and asked me really good questions, and it's clear I just need to grow as a preacher. I'm not explaining this that well, at least to some of you. Now, there's always room to grow. I got plenty of room to grow. So let's, let's, for the people in the back, as they say, let me make sure we're clear on what I meant about grace versus works was a dichotomy for the Jews when Jesus was alive. Let me explain what I mean, right? Because for the Jew, the law of Christ was not about just the Ten Commandments, right? It wasn't obey the Ten Commandments or follow Jesus. The Ten Commandments, Jesus didn't come and say don't do the Ten Commandments. That's not what he said. In fact, the law of Christ deepens the moral meaning of the Mosaic law. So you'll hear Jesus say stuff like this, like in Matthew 5, right, 43 and 44. The whole, the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was saying stuff like this, right? You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a tough word for us. When he said that to them, they were, they were an occupied nation. Roman soldiers could just come up and abuse them. And he was like, nah, turn the other cheek. When they, when, they, when they take your one cloak, offer them the other. They force you to go one mile, go with them too. They were like, wait a minute, I thought the Mosaic law was like an eye for an eye, two for a two. He's like, not anymore. The Mosaic law for the Jew was a complicated web of commands. Some added, many ignored. It was overwhelming, and it was way more than the Ten Commandments. To be more specific, for the Jew, if you were a Jew when Jesus was alive, here was what the law was. Here was what you had to live every day, all right? You had to do animal sacrifices, as listed in Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 4. Various animal sacrifices for different purposes, including sin offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings. You had to sin. You got to get some money, scrape some money up. If you don't have a lot of money, they let you buy these doves. They were like a couple pennies. Poor birds. If you had a dove farm or something, you was caked up because everybody was getting them doves. You got all these offerings for sacrifice. All these, it was a lot. But when Jesus came, his sacrifice on the cross was the ultimate atonement for sin. So animal sacrifices ended immediately if you believed in Jesus. All that extra money you could save. You got dietary restrictions. Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. The Mosaic law has strict dietary laws. Foods were clean and unclean. I mean, the law said you cannot eat shrimp back then. I would have been a Moabite because I'm, I just, I need, I like shrimp. I'd have been like, all right, well, I'm going to be with the Philistines. You just could. There was foods that were unclean. 
But then Jesus, he said, now nah, what makes a person unclean is what's in their heart. Jesus declared all foods clean in the New Testament. You had circumcision, which we've talked about heavy. Circumcision. But in Christ, no more circumcision. You just had to believe in him. You had priestly intercession in Leviticus 16, Exodus 28. You had priests had to absolve you of your sins, like the Catholic Church today. The Catholic Church brought back some of the Old Testament rites and formed it into the Catholic Church. When Jesus died, the curtain was torn in two because you no longer need a priest. You can go directly to God and ask for forgiveness of your sins. But they had to go to priests. They had to have a day, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, where a priest sprinkled the blood of bulls on the altar for the sins of the whole nation. Laid his hands on a goat and transferred the sins of the nation to a goat. You had Sabbath observance with 63 extra laws that the Pharisees came up with. You know who do that today? Seventh-day Adventists. They got the dietary restrictions in the Sabbath observance. They do that today. The Catholic Church has the priests. Sabbath was crucial. You couldn't do nothing on the Sabbath. You took a deep breath, the Pharisees was on you. People was like this, on the Sabbath day. They was on you. It was on you. Jesus said, I'm the Sabbath. Rest in me. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Rest in me. Breathe. You have ceremonial regulations. Exodus 29, Exodus 25, tabernacle construction, a mosaic law, all these ceremonies, purification rituals, feasts, all these different things. And Jesus said, man, I'm the, that all points to me. You don't have to do any of that anymore. The Ten Commandments were probably the easiest to obey because there were 613 laws in the Mosaic Law and the Torah. 613 laws in the Pentateuch that you had to obey every day. So here's the grace verse works option for the Jews when Jesus walked the earth. You can do all 613 of these laws every day or believe in Jesus. That was the issue. Do all of that work every day or have faith and believe in Jesus' work. Those are your options. All of this work will not earn you what you think now that Jesus has come. That work was in preparation for his work. Those sacrifices were in preparation for his death on the cross being the sacrifice. None of that earns you anything now. That's nullified. And many Jews were like, I can't do that. I can't believe in this dude and not obey the laws of Moses. John 1, 16, 17, he describes it like this. For from fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So when I talk about the, the first 
century theological issue about grace and works, this was the issue. It was all 613, you must obey perfectly or believe in Jesus. Choose your weapon. That was the biblical understanding. Many of us don't have that because we weren't even trying to obey God in a way previous that needs to change. We weren't trying to do that. So let's talk about grace for us. How do we view grace then? Because we're not coming from trying to obey God one way. Many of us are coming from having not even known who God is and not cared about it. I'm not talking about growing up in the church. You can grow up in the church and not care at all about that. The other day, my son, this was actually yesterday. What's today, Sunday? These days just be gone. So it was Friday. One of my son's friends, he was talking to his, his friend about, about faith in Christ. And his friend, this dude, well, I don't even know if he was his friend. It was a dude that was like, he said, um, he said, ask two questions. And the first, my son was like, I, I ain't know how to answer it. And he said, um, well, the second one was, how do you know you don't believe this because you grew up in this? Like, you could have grown up a Buddhist or you could have grown up a How do you know you don't just believe this because you grew up in it? And he said he wasn't really rattled by that one, but he didn't know what to say. I said, that's an easy one, son. I said, there are people all over the world that believe in Jesus that didn't grow up in him at all. And there are people who grow up in him that walk away from him. That doesn't mean anything. There are people who grow up hearing about Jesus and will walk away as if they never heard from him and will regret it for eternity. And there are people that you never thought would believe in Jesus that are now willing to give their life for him. What house you grew up in has no bearing on your eternity. You may be exposed to believing earlier than others, but you're not a believer because you grew up in a house. Because if that's the case, everyone who grew up a certain way would only believe that thing. But there are people who believe tons of stuff. I didn't grow up a Christian. I was a street dude. The last thing I was thinking about was going to church. We thought about going to church to get girls, maybe, because we thought they'd be purer than the girls that we was around. That's just real talk. I ain't do that because I was like, I ain't going to church. Man, you crazy, bro. But I ain't grow up in that environment. And here I'm sitting here, a pastor, the humor of the Lord. I said, that was an easy one. But then he asked, his friend asked this other question that was tougher. My son didn't know how to answer it. And I'm stalling because for the life of me, I cannot remember what that question was. I'm trying. Why can't I remember that question right now? The Lord is like, got you. I can take that from your mind and have you keep it moving. Well, there was a question that he asked my son he couldn't answer, but I told him to answer. Moving on. I told him how to answer it. He said, oh, son, oh, that's, that's an old question right there. Man, what is that question? Lord, Lord got me out here looking old out here. It'll come back. For us, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like, all right, what does the Bible actually say that grace does? I said, I want to start from scratch. Instead of taking a definition that I've heard from some theologian, what does the Bible describe what grace actually does? So I said, let's start from scratch. So there are 131 uses of the word grace in the ESV translation. 
Six of them are in the Old Testament, 125 in the New Testament. Many of them are making grace a greeting, like grace to you, the beginning of a letter. Grace to you, it's a greeting. Then there's grace that's also like a blessing and stuff like that. But I thought, what does grace actually do? And there are a handful of verses that really describe what grace does. So let's walk through each of these verses so you can see these are all the verses that I found that what grace does, not like how we relate to grace. Like there's verses that talk about see to it no one fails to obtain grace, right, like in Hebrews 12. Or you got to be good stewards of grace in 1 Peter 4. You can fall away from grace in Galatians 5. You can grow in grace, and, but that's all stuff that we do. What does the Bible say that grace does by itself? Not how we react to it, but what it does. Romans 3, 23 and 24. Here's what he says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here it goes. Grace justifies. Grace justified in this sense means you are legally declared by God not guilty for sins that you have committed because of faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, we've all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. So grace justifies. It declares, it, it's the reason why God will look at us and say, you're not guilty because of grace. Romans 5.21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So grace reigns through righteousness. This is what grace does. Grace justifies, and it reigns through righteousness. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, right? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So grace saves us. So it justifies, saves, might reign, saves and justify overlap. Romans 12.6, having gifts that defer according to the grace given us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. So grace gives different gifts to the church. So it justifies, it reigns through righteousness, it saves, it gives gifts to believers. 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God in me, was with me. So grace works hard in believers. Works hard. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 9. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So grace sustains us in trial. It's sufficient. Grace sustains us through trial. Every genuine believer in this room has been sustained by grace in difficult situations. And here's the proof, because you still believe. Because I know people that have walked away from the Lord for far less than what some of you are still standing with in bed. I know people who have walked away for some of the things that many of you are doubling down on. 
That's why I'm proud to be a pastor in this church. I don't deserve to be a pastor in this church. But y'all don't deserve to have me either, though. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sort of. No, I'm just playing. I think. All right, my grace. 2 Timothy 2.1. He said, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So grace strengthens. Strengthens. Titus 2, 11 through 13. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We heard that already. It saves. It justifies. But then it says this in verse 12. This is grace. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace, we know that it saves, we got that, but it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives, and we wait for the blessed hope of Jesus because of grace. It has us wait. This is why, as I just said, there are people in this room that still believe, despite the fact that you have circumstantial reasons to question God. 2 Peter 1, 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace can be multiplied to us. These are all the verses that say what grace does. The other verses either use grace as a greeting or they just say stuff like, or they, or they talk about grace and how we re relate to it. But the grace justifies us, reigns in us, saves us, gives different gifts to us, works in us, is sufficient for us in suffering, strengthens us, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and can be multiplied to us. That's what the Bible says. You can look it up for yourself. Go get a good concordance, type in the word grace, and look it up. Look up every New Testament usage of it. I did. These are all the verses that say what grace does on its own. And none of these verses say removes us from the responsibility to be faithful. This list doesn't say that. There's nothing about grace that we should say we're allowed to not do something. So if this is what scripture says grace does, then what is grace? This is what grace does. Then what is grace? Well, the most common answer is this unmerited favor, right? And that's, there's truth in that. It's unmerited favor. It's the idea that God bestows his love, forgiveness, and salvation because we haven't done anything to earn it, purely of his benevolent and merciful character. Unmerited favor, 100%. But based on this list, we have to also say that grace is, it's an empowering presence. Grace is not just about salvation. It's also about how God empowers us to live out our faith. It's not just about salvation. It's not about what we don't have to do. It empowers us to do things. If we're looking at this list, it's a means of sanctification. 
because it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to make self-control upright and godly lives in the present age. It's grace when you do that, when you make decisions to honor the Lord, when you're trying to put your obedience to a fruit of the spirit or a beatitude. That's grace. It's a reflection of God's character, right? Grace is a relationship builder. We use our gifts to serve each other. That's grace. It's a source of hope and comfort. Hebrews 4.16, it tells us this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It helps us in time of need. The throne of grace. That's an interesting phraseology. What other, because many of us think of grace as an attribute of God, right? What other attribute is there a throne for? Is there a throne of love, a throne of patience, a throne of? It's interesting language. Throne of grace. It's a state of reconciliation. Grace is the bridge builder between humanity and the divine. It's the olive branch extended by God to a world estranged by sin. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Grace is very complex. It's an unearned, transformative, empowering, reconciliatory, ultimate expression of divine love. But you know what's the craziest about grace? All the things that grace does are what the Bible says the Spirit does. This list is all justifies, reigns, saves, gives different gifts, works on us, is sufficient in suffering, strengthens, trains us, can be multiplied to us. All these are things that the Spirit does. These are all actions of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Word of God. What if the Spirit is the grace of God? Hebrews 10.29 tells us this, correcting people who were saved that walk away from the faith. He says this, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? The spirit of grace. Capital S Spirit. Interesting. Zechariah 12.10 says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, 
They shall, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. It says, I will pour out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace so when they look on him whom, whom they pierced, they will mourn. You know in John 19, 34 through 37, listen to what it says. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So this John verse is quoting from Zechariah 12. And the Zechariah 12 prophecy is about pouring out the spirit of grace so that people will mourn over Jesus whom they've killed. And when you get to Acts 2, when the spirit comes, Peter's preaching, it says they were cut to the heart. They were mourning. Hmm. Do you know in the word grace is only used three times in the Gospels? In John 1, that's it. Grace doesn't show up as a normal term until the book of Acts after the Holy Spirit is poured out. John, the Gospels are all about glory. What if the Bible is laid out like this? Old Testament is the person of the Father. The Gospels are the person of the Son. And Acts on is the person of the Spirit. Y'all don't want that smoke today. We got to end. Mm, you do not want me to go there. I tell you what, when we finish this series in a couple of months <laughs> and we do the supernatural storyline of the Gospels, we're going to have a conversation about the Holy Spirit and about what the Holy Spirit is really. For now, starting next week, we're going to look at individual issues and talk about what the scheme of the devil is for each of them. We're going to look at different issues, anger, lust, fear of man. We're going to go look at all these issues, anxiety, complaining, gossip. And be like, all right, let's look at each of these issues and what is the scheme of the devil when he's tempting us to respond in those ways. When we finish that, we're going to do the supernatural storyline of the Gospels. My goal is to try to hit things that we struggle with on a daily basis, see what the scheme of the devil is, and try to provide ways of thinking differently, apply grace differently, so that we can walk away from these things. That's the hope. But bigger picture, bigger picture, the hope is that you remember the future. Remember the future. Tomorrow's not promised, but that day is. That's a whole separate category. Brothers and sisters, remember the future. Remember the future.
Our culture is looking to the past so much. Everything's about the past, what happened to me yesterday. Remember the future. This is one of the ways we set our minds on things that are above. We lay our treasures in heaven. We remember the future. We make decisions based on that day. A lot of other stuff we'll get to, but the thing you're going to hear me say a ton is remember the future. Because if you are a believer, well, everyone is going to see that day. But if you are a believer, that day is going to be an amazing day because you will be rewarded because you remembered the future. Amen? Let's pray. Father, your word tells us to be stewards of your grace, but that's our responsibility. As we look at grace and and as we adjust our perspectives, help us, Lord, to process deeply, to make subtle adjustments. Let's not, Lord, you don't expect us to overwhelm ourselves, but help us to, to go after the ways that we've used grace, the ways we've applied grace. We always think if we didn't think a certain thought that that means we don't do it. But when we examine how we functionally live, we do make a lot of excuses. Using grace. And I think grace is something much deeper than what we think. But we use grace as a reason why we don't have to do things. We've largely viewed grace as the removal of consequences, correction, or confrontation. And so we relate to each other like that, and we think you relate to us like that. And on one level, yes, the ultimate consequence of hell is removed from us, as best as we know. But not every consequence. Help us to see grace as something more than just unmerited favor. If nothing else, help us to remember Titus 2, 11 through 13, that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. Help us to stop stealing candy bars. Because we're just too old. Some of us have just been walking with you too long. We know you too well to just be reckless. Help us to really understand grace at a deeper level so that in 2024, we're just pressing in. But I do thank you for the ways that I've seen that happen in 2023. I know churches that have been distraught by things that have happened. And you're holding us together. I thank you for that, Lord. And pray that you would continue to do so on a deeper level on a more joyful level as we understand what it really means to apply grace to our lives. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that message, Kurt. Um, We have one question here. We're going to transition to Q&A. There's the number there for folks who want to send their questions. Or not. Or not. Uh, Are the Redskins playing? They I mean, are, the we're <laughs> four and 11. Like, I'm done. Like, okay. I don't even. It's a travesty. Send in your questions. <laughs> I was to supposed what? to go to the game today for what? 
Oh, so then you can send your questions. Yeah, I can ask as many. That's a travesty. <laughs> <laughs> to what degree do we confront friends or family who are Christians about sin without sounding holier than thou, especially when we know how sinful we are? So I think, so holier than thou is not about bringing up someone's sin. Holier than thou is an attitude you have over people in light of their sin. I think we need to get rid of holier than thou. That's a scheme of the devil. You're holier than thou if you think you're better than people because they sin in certain ways. And if that's the case, then yeah, Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye. You stop and you pray like, Lord, please forgive me for my own wickedness. Like you've been merciful towards me and gracious towards me. Help me to be like that towards others. And then you go take, the word says, take the log out of your eye and then go show your brother respect, right? So it's biblical to do so. So I think the way to, if you're thinking about confronting people, I think these, this is the methods that I use. It's two, two ways. It's instances and patterns, right? I'm not going to correct instances unless it causes a lot of harm, right? If, I, if someone does something and they was just wild and it's like, all right, I'm not going to weigh in on that real heavy unless it causes a lot of harm. Some instances can cause significant harm. But normally patterns of things, patterns of attitudes, patterns of all that about you being, well, I sin too, then, it, then if that's the case, then you can't ever say nothing to nobody. That's God knew we're all sinful. I'm sinful. But that's not, that's not what the Bible says, though. It says we spur one another on, right? We bear one another's burdens. We do these things because we're commanded, not because we're not sinful. So I think just that mindset needs to go from people. But if you're worried about being self-righteous, then I think you need to confess that to the Lord before you share it with a person, but you still should share it. So I think I'm looking for patterns or instances that cause a lot of challenges for people. You know, if someone does something crazy today, I'm not going to rush over there and be like, hey, bro, what's... But then if you do, but if I, you know, God forbid, right? But if we're after church and I see some people fighting, I mean, literally throwing fists, cussing and fighting, and this is the first time they've done it, I ain't going to be like, well, this is only an instance, so I'm going to let that... You know what I'm saying? I'm going to rush over there, you know? Then if you hit me, then we're going to fight and then ask for forgiveness later. Now, I'm going to turn the other cheek as best as I'm able to. But no, if something like that happens, we're going to shut that down. But then there are other things like, uh, but then there are patterns that people, there's attitudes that people have. You know, you see somebody, you know, always judging people or boasting a lot or something like that. Or you see them being harsh with their children or their spouse. And you see it enough, you got you to say something. You got you to speak to that. And I, and I, don't, I think you got to get rid of, well, I, I mean, I sin too. So what? Don't, you know, the only person who didn't sin was who? Right. So everybody was, a, Paul corrected people, Peter corrected, Peter, Paul corrected Peter in front of everybody. I mean, that's not the, that's an excuse, I think. It, it, and I get a small fear of man. It sounds humble, but it's just like, no, nah, I don't really, I'm not comfortable doing it, is what it really means. It's like be, being faithful is not about being comfortable. Like, throw that out the window. There's not much faithfulness that has to do with being comfortable. If you're worried about how you say it, go to the Lord first, Lord. Help me to be because I know I'm sinful. You know, I'm this. Confess that. And then take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think, I think we've made too many excuses. And you put a lot of pressure on the, the pastors that I got to weigh in. And I wasn't even there. I didn't even see it. And then when I come up to people and say, well, well Pastor Chris, that's not what happened. That's not what I said. Oh, man. Now I got to deal with all because I'm, it's just like, no, if you saw it and you're concerned about it, just gently say it. And if nothing else, think about how you would want somebody to approach you. You want somebody to pull you aside and just say, hey, 
Can I just ask you a question? I always try to form it in questions. If it's, if it's like that type of situation, I try to form it in a question. Not just what fruit of the spirit was that. But that is a good one, though. That does cut to the chase. But I, I just think patterns and instances. I think there's a lot of patterns that we just get used to. A lot of ways people carry themselves that we just get used to. And, and then we, and then if we correct. And here's the thing. When we correct people or bring us something up and they get offended, we think like, oh, it wasn't grace. Like, man, get out of here. Like, be faithful. Read it. Faithfulness is like saying what you see. And God will deal with how you said it and grow. Let me tell you this, too. I know people are like, well, I'm just worried about not saying it right now. Practice makes perfect, fam. You ain't going to ever get to the point where you like, one day like, wow, I, I, I perfectly know how to talk to people now. Like, hey, brother, can I? And then they'd be like, man, you weirdo. What you talking about? Why you talking like that for? Like, it's just no perfect way to do it. You're just going to do it according to your personality, according to faithfulness. Some people are going to be bolder than others because you like, that's how you are. Some people will be more soft-spoken. Personality doesn't matter. Faithfulness does. Yeah, there's another question here. Uh, this one's around how does the Bible distinguish between grace and mercy? Thank you, brother. This is grace right here. Um. I think on some level, they overlap. But I think on some level, grace is something else. I think grace is the Holy Spirit. As Jesus is the word of God, I think the Holy Spirit is the grace of God. I'm just not ready to prove it today. I just gave y'all a taste, but we're going to talk if the Lord allows. So I think mercy is, they can be used interchangeably. Um, but grace is different than mercy in a sense. Mercy is more, um, grace isn't just a reaction to what people said that they deserve. It does, like mercy doesn't empower you to fight in the same way, right? Like there's a, mercy is more like, mercy is more you deserve something and you're not getting it. That's mercy. Grace is way more different. I mean, it can overlap, I think, in the way we think about it, but I, I think grace is, 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 different. I think mercy is really, you deserve this and you're not, you've received mercy. Instead, I think grace does a lot more. It doesn't say mercy empowers you to, mercy doesn't train you in righteousness. Mercy doesn't justify, it doesn't talk like that, right? But even though, but it's all God, right? So on one level, just it's all God, but mercy doesn't, doesn't talk like that. So I think, um, but we, we, we going to get into that though. Yeah. Excellent. Well, there's no more questions. Thank you. Man, that's wild. The day that I don't care about watching the game. <laughs> the days I'm trying to get to the game, everybody and their mother going to tell me something. The days I don't care, it's two questions. Grace is amazing. All right, well, let's, let's go to the greatest display of grace that we have ever seen and will ever see. It is the scene of Jesus on the cross for six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. At 12 p.m., the whole world gets dark. And at 3 p.m., Jesus screams, why have you forsaken me? And then eventually says it is finished. That grace in that moment is what allows us to participate in grace, right? It's why, we, why we're here, why we sing, why we listen to sermons, why we believe. That, that's the reality for us. 
And, and this is what we celebrate. We don't celebrate it on Christmas and Easter. We celebrate it on every day in between. So if you are a believer, and if you're not, that's okay. We don't, you don't have to do this. It's just for those who profess to believe in Jesus. And we know not everybody here may do that. And there's no shame in that. There was a time in my life where I would have been sitting here not participating in this because I just didn't believe. Even if I enjoyed what was said or, or whatever, I was invited, I didn't believe. But once you believe, there is, this is part of what Jesus said do in remembrance of him, to remember that he died on the cross and gave his life. So there is a time when we remember the past, but that remembering the past ushers us to remember the future. But for the moment, let's remember the past of his crucifixion and thank him for it. Father, we thank you for sending your son. And Jesus, we thank you for being sent, willing to come and die for us, to live the perfect obedience for everyone. You obeyed all 613 laws in the Old Testament and, and laws that you did were so deep that we wouldn't even try to begin to process. You've obeyed all those things for your glory. And our good. And so we get to celebrate the reality of that. And so, Father, I thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for being sent. And we eat this wafer to remind ourselves of the past when your body was broken for us. Let's eat. And we drink this, this juice as a reminder of the past on the day that your blood was shed for us. There are two days that matter to us. The day you died and rose, those days, and the day that we'll stand before you. So we remember the past, your blood, and remember the future, you as the judge. So we drink this together. Father, as we transition to a new calendar year, we know that ultimately our hearts don't change with the date. Our desires don't change with the date. Our weaknesses, our strengths don't change for the date. We may make commitments on, on January 1st, as some have come to do. And we may or may not keep them, but our, our, nothing changes but the day. But I pray that we would still, for those of us who will be together tonight, may we enjoy each other and bring in the new year in grace, remembering the future. But, Lord, most importantly, may 2024 be a year of incredible grace applied in our church. Help us to understand what grace is biblically as we started to today more so, as we will continue. And, Lord, we just, we're doing what we think your will is, trying to honor you. So, Lord, may our church grow deeper in this understanding of grace and use it in a way that you intended not in a way that's beneficial for us, that releases us from levels of faithfulness. May we not be satisfied with mediocrity. And may we not, may we walk according to the, in our faith, according to the age that we are in you. We're too old to be reckless at this point, Lord. May your grace train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And if even if other people make fun of us for that, if the world as it does is increases in these things, may we decrease. Lord, your word says be infants in, in evil. 
May we be infants in evil for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. See y'all next year. <laughs>